Welcome to Flex Perspectives, where I interview the thought leaders, innovators, and executives shaping the future of flexible work. Flex Perspectives is brought to you by the Flex Index, the world's most robust source for full-time hybrid and remote work requirements. The Flex Index represents more than 6,500 companies, 45,000 office locations, and 100 million people. It's a great place to start if you're looking for your next flexible work career opportunity. Today, my guest is Ryan Anderson. Ryan is the VP of Global Research and Insights at Miller Knoll, the parent company of Herman Miller, a major producer of office furniture, equipment, and home furnishings. Today, we'll discuss how Herman Miller started preparing for remote work more than two decades ago, how real estate leaders need to start thinking like product managers, and how employees should approach investing in their home office. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating. That helps new listeners find the podcast. Ryan, welcome. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me, my friend. I appreciate it. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Uh, so, Ryan, one of the things I find so fascinating is that you have a really interesting journey in terms of how you actually got to Miller & Knoll. If I remember correctly, I think you started at Steelcase earlier in your career. Is that right? I did. Um, and so tell me a little bit about that. How did that evolve? How did you get to Herman Miller? Sure. Well, I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And while I think most people would know that the tech industry has hubs in Silicon Valley and Seattle and elsewhere, maybe people don't realize that Grand Rapids, Michigan is home to some of the best furniture companies in the world. So, you know, my my grandpa worked for one. It's kind of the, the industry around here. When I went to college, I'm like, I'm not going to work for a furniture company. That seems really boring. But it was the research that got me so interested. And so, yeah, I spent the first, boy, almost 17 years of my career at Steelcase. Um, you know, they treated me well. It's a good organization. But I did make my way over to Herm Miller in 2012, specifically to focus on a topic that I'm really passionate about, which is the intersection of technology in the workplace. So I led Herm Miller's tech research before, you know, growing with the company. And now I'm fortunate to lead all of our research efforts. I didn't realize that this was in some ways like the, the family business for you, that you've gone <laughs> into the trade for multiple generations. It, it is. And it's like such, it, we're not a huge you know town. I think the, the metro area is maybe a million people, but I'll go to a, a school football game tonight and there will be people that I probably sit with from at least three or four other furniture companies. And we've learned to live in peaceful coexistence. And actually beyond that, there's something to be said for having really good competitors because you push each other to innovate better and to accomplish more. So yeah, this is kind of the industry business around around West Michigan. In uh, fact, Grand Rapids for years was known as Furniture City USA. Are you a Michigan guy or a Michigan State guy or something else? I am a Michigan State grad and guy, uh, evidenced by the basketball hiding behind me. But yeah, no, I'm a go green Spartan. Awesome. And uh, if I recall correctly, you haven't only been working at kind of like big furniture, for lack of a better description. I think you dabbled in startups for a little while as well in between. Is that right? I did. I mean, I had spent nearly 10 years of my career in the furniture industry trying to understand the relationship between technology and workplace. And it was evident that mobile technologies, Wi-Fi, distributed working was going to completely upend office design. That, that became evident probably around 2004, 2005. And so I did take an opportunity to go to a, a SaaS startup, a company called Team, T-E-E-M, um, that focused on room scheduling, wayfinding. We ended up selling that business to WeWork, which I was there for six of six of the more unusual months of my career. Front row seat uh, to some interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah. So if you've, if you've seen the documentaries, yep. Um, 
But it was great to be at a venture-backed startup and to be on the technology side of workplace uh, in a more official capacity. But yeah, after the um, after we sold that business, I rang up my friends at Herman Miller and said, it might be time to come back. And so I've been back since 2019. Well, if you were going to dabble in the startup pond, that's probably one of the most interesting and unique <laughs> experiences that you could have accumulated over that time period. No doubt. Uh, and so... You talked a little bit about this already, but my guess is that a lot of people are not familiar with how much of an emphasis Miller Knoll uh, puts on research and, and kind of the insights work you do. And so talk a little bit more about as VP of Global Research and Insights, what are you responsible for? What are some of the, the areas or, or topics that you spend a lot of time digging into? Sure. Well, um, as you might know, Miller Knoll is a fairly new entity. It's, it's, uh, it's a collective of brands now. We've got um, more than a dozen companies in the family, including Herma Miller and Knoll, kind of the two flagships, but many others as well. And many of them had historical research. So if I think about Knoll as an example, back in the 40s, Florence Knoll was kind of prototyping new ways of designing space in something called Knoll Planning Unit. It, it actually became the archetype for today's interior design firms in some ways. Herman Miller had officially begun doing research on work and workplace in 1960. In fact, when Stanford showed the world the first personal computer, Herman Miller designed the environment for it in 1968. Oh, that's a cool story. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, the, the quick side story is I was at Herman Miller maybe four weeks and the head of PR left me a voicemail that said, hey, Ryan, Stanford called, they're doing a musical and they need to talk to you. And I was like, what? I, I like listened to this thing three times. Like, they're doing a musical, Stanford? Well, I didn't know that Stanford and Herm Miller had collaborated on what was really a, a momentous event in the world of technology. And I'm still not exactly sure why they decided to commemorate it with a musical that particular year. But yeah, there's these long history of research within these organizations. And so we're building on it. And I say that in a very literal way, like Herm Miller's first official research pro uh, project into work from home was in 1993. It was called Out of Office. In some ways, like the insights that were delivered in that project, hey, people are going to be working from home more. They don't want big, bulky institutional furniture in their homes. You're going to have multiple users of multiple generations. Like a lot of it's still very relevant. So we're building on it. Um, we have a team of researchers. We do a variety of types of research. I won't get too geeky on you, but we do quantitative. We do qualitative, ethnographic. Some of it's primary, a lot of it's primary, some of it's secondary. We have lots of research friends and partners that we go explore with. But beyond that, we have a group of full-time insight sharers who literally speak around the world about what we learn. And that team ranges from the US to Bangalore and probably expand beyond that soon. And then we've got folks who can actually work with individual customers on their workplace strategy and design and move from an issue to a design. You know, if a, if a customer says, I'm really concerned about the mental health and burnout of my employees, like what does that mean for the design of a workspace? Uh, and so we try to just help stitch that journey together between what we learn and what we have learned to how we actually apply it. And then we learn as much as we can from those examples, how to go, you know, what, what did we all get right? what did we get wrong? Um, so that there's a kind of a circular effect. You know, what's so cool about that, the example that you gave before about some of the research and the, and the insights, I think you had said it was from maybe 2004 or 2005 is I bet a lot of people who are less familiar with your organization would think, okay, well, maybe the emphasis here is reactionary to what's happened over the last few years and trying to figure out where you take the company. But in some ways, if Miller Dole and I guess Herman Miller at the time, right, were, were pretty far out in front of these topics and thinking about the evolution of how the world might move. 
I think so. Um, it, it was not a surprise that work was growing more distributed. I think I personally started my first look into remote first companies around 2013. Actually, I think if, if I speak specifically from Herm Miller's standpoint, but I think this is probably true of Noel as well. I don't know that we were particularly excited about what was happening with the workplace in 2017, 18, 19. You know, lots of densified small desks that were used less and less. And um, viewed in a certain way, more flexible work practices unleashes the office so that it doesn't have to be some generic container where all work somehow happens, but it can really focus on the things that it does really well. And so I would say not only were we thinking about where the workplace might go, we're still cautiously optimistic that despite all of the return to office concerns, et cetera, that this may be a long overdue reset in helping the office to be what it what it kind of wanted to be. You know, back in the 50s, there was a movement in Germany called Bureaulandschaft, which is office landscape, that mm-hmm. suggested that offices should be highly varied. People should move through it. It shouldn't be a uniform kind of boring environment. Uh, it should be something very human-centered. And ironically, it was desktop computers and being tethered to like one work point for 30 years that really took that in a different direction. So yeah, I think we were ahead of it. I think our view of the workplace is still relatively consistent with where we see it going. It's been accelerated, but my big concern now is can we clear can we clear the headlines about home or the workplace to say, yep, home and office, this is what a home does really well. This is what an office does really well. Now let's get to it because we've right. researched both places. You know? Yeah, and it's not so binary to your point. And, you know, and one of the funny things that I I had actually not made the connection on until you just said it was, you're, you're totally right on the trend toward densification. And I think there was probably no industry where that was more pronounced than tech over time and going from, you know, a couple hundred square feet per person to, you know, models where, you know, I think in some were incredibly dense, like even sub hundred square feet, right, per person. And tech is also perhaps non-coincidentally been the the heaviest adopter of work location flexibility of any industry. And I think there's probably a number of reasons for that, but uh, the experience that people had in the few years before the pandemic around density is probably a, a nice contributor to the way people thought about that. Yeah. I mean, the tech uh, sector is such an anomaly when it comes to workplace, specifically office design, because we saw some of the big tech companies being celebrated as the most forward thinking in terms of unique alternative workplaces. But some of them, not all of them, also had draconian expectations that people would spend 10, 11, 12 hours a day there. Like free dinner is not a perk if you're expected to be there through dinner or laundry on on the floor. And so it was weird. In some ways, the companies that were enabling remote were least likely to support flexibility. And so we've seen almost this revolutionary spirit, haven't we, of employees about about the office. I get very concerned that the office is like in some sort of rope in a tug of war when in fact... There's other, you know, there's other tech organizations that have done amazing job with their offices, support flexible work. They've managed to strike that balance. And um, yeah, and so I don't I don't often really look to the tech sector maybe as the example of where things might go. If I think about consulting world, maybe like consulting firms 25 years ago said, gee, our people spend a couple days a week at clients. What do we do with our spaces to have them be attractive hubs of connection the other days of the week? Like, that for me is maybe a little better indication uh, historically of where things were going than what we saw in tech. 
Yeah, it's a great point. And sometimes tech is a great bellwether for trends that may hit in five years or 10 years. And sometimes it's a terrible prognosticator of what's going on. You know, thinking about long-term trends, and, and you were talking a little bit about the history of, of Herman Miller, which I think is what, more than 120 years old, I think, at this point. Uh, one of the interesting things I wanted to ask you about was you started some of the research and, and, and folks before you've been doing research in these topics for decades, right, prior to the pandemic. And so when the pandemic hit, did it feel like just another twist or turn in the or new chapter, I guess, in, in the kind of like the history of the company um, and kind of a continuation of the same? Or did it really feel like a sea change in the way that you as an organization thought about uh, the office and kind of the trajectory that we're on there? Yeah, uh, it was it was a mixed bag. Right. So really quickly, probably by June or July of, of 2020, we were putting out videos on this is what distributed work is all about. You're going to have to manage distributed teams differently. It's almost like we had this closet full of insight that we're like, like here it, it is. And I remember doing a video on like asynchronous collaboration and the need for nobody wanted that. <laughs> Most of the people we were serving were just like, what do we do? Um, so it, it was a bit of a mixed bag and I do trend towards optimism. So in some ways I was like, this is really good. We, su we support work wherever it happens. I think that's true of almost all of our brands. And we have a lot of brands like Hey and Design Within Reach and others that are primarily residential brands too. So as a, as a family, even when it was just the Herman Miller group, but now as Miller Knoll, we are pretty diversified. So our business shifted during the pandemic. You know, we sold a lot of residential uh, product. We sold a lot of work from home product, a lot of outdoor. And um, we launched uh, Herm Miller's gaming products in July of 2020. I could say that we were really strategic about that timing, but we were also a little bit lucky. And so it was a chance for us to be able to support work. And I'm using work very broadly. Uh, that would be the work happening in healthcare facilities, higher education facilities, homes and beyond during the pandemic, maybe in ways that we hadn't. But I'll be frank when I say I did not anticipate these protracted headlines creating such tension around home or work to last more than maybe six months. The, the answer was always and, um, not or. And uh, that has been a source of some heartache for me and the team. There was, there was a piece in the journal, um, I don't know, month or two ago now that showed an Aeron chair uh, being, it was like this graphic, the Aeron chair was being pulled, the employee was pulling it into their home and the boss was pulling it to the no, office. I didn't and, see that. I mean, we, we've always kind of said like, let's, wherever people are doing their stuff, like wherever they're working or learning or healing or whatever they're doing, like, let's be there. Um, so of course we would want, whether it's a, you know, Aeron chair or a Knoll chair or whatever to be, in both locations, but boy, I'm ready for that binary kind of argument and the rising tensions and distrust between executives and, and employees to, to wane if at all possible so that we can get to the business of supporting a more dynamic and more flexible model of work. Yeah. And I think we're, my hope is that we are getting closer to less discussion on what in terms of what's the policy, how many days a week, what does that look like, and more into how. Like, okay, for if most organizations are going to be hybrid in some capacity, what does that look like? What are the best practices? How do we get better at it? The other thing that really strikes me from what you were just sharing is this is maybe a, in another example to me of 
how important it is to be you know, somewhat anti-fragile or diversified in terms of uh, product line and approach. You know, you, you, it sounds like for a number of years, there had been a thesis within the company you know, that you know, things may change in terms of the way we think about work and where we work. And it sounds like that led to some good decisions around balance of investment in office versus home versus other places. Um, without that, it could have been potentially a much more difficult or even catastrophic you know, chapter, it sounds like, over the last few years. Yeah, we had intentionally diversified. Um, the other thing that had happened is if you get into interior design practices, the lines between different sorts of environments had already blurred. So 20 years ago, if I said this is a higher education space or this is a clinical healthcare space or this is a residential space or a corporate office space, it would have implied very different design elements we were already seeing cross-pollinization, and our research is designed for that cross-pollinization um, for you know a long time. In, in some ways, offices were already learning from campuses, which were already mobile and distributed and focused on collaboration. Um, and I think in some ways, healthcare facilities had been bringing in hospitality elements from the worlds of restaurants and others. And so we haven't bucketed those separately. Like when the pandemic broke, the very first person I called was the person leading our healthcare research to say, hey, when you have to deal with infectious disease and airborne viruses in a clinical facility, what do you do? Hmm. And um, you know, there had been a, a SARS outbreak in Toronto in 2003, and we'd already looked at what happened when people started throwing up plexiglass and trying to build in new sinks. And we were really fortunate. We had a lot to go on. And I think that's still true today. Like I was just talking with a financial services provider who does like financial advisory about how to create better spaces of belonging and inclusion to attract new customers coming in to talk to a financial advisor. It reminded me of the exact same design principles you'll see in a clinical facility that does like um, patient consult rooms where the doctor doesn't want to be seen as intimidating, white coat, sitting behind a big desk. So this intersection of design principles was already underway. And that probably as much as anything accelerated our ability to help. Yeah, it's funny. This reminds me of why consulting businesses exist in the first place. I started my career at Bain, right? And that cross-pollination of idea or practice from one industry into another industry or one product line into another uh, so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel and can learn best practices from similar contexts. Uh, it makes a ton of sense that the same thing would apply in some ways to, to design of different environments. Yeah, totally. Uh, so on, on that dimension on office design, you know, one of the things that we were just talking about a few minutes ago was starting to shift away from headlines about the what and the policy and into the how. Um, an important element of that, I imagine, is how do you think about setting up your office space and, and what does that look like and how do you invest in it? Um, what's your sense right now? Are companies getting this right? Are they getting it wrong? What's working and not working? Like if you had to give a state of the, the office uh, environment, like how would you describe where we're at right now? Uh, broadly, I would say that organizations are reevaluating some of the more formulaic approaches that were used for office design. I don't want to sound pejorative in any way, but when that era of desktop computing existed, you could basically say, I've got X number of people this is the square meters or square feet per person, and we should split it between individual desks, conference rooms, et cetera. It, it was somewhat algorithmic. And so most organizations I talk to and we talk with, my team talks with hundreds of them around the world every year, um, are reevaluating that. 
Uh, as one of my team members likes to say, they're moving from designing for to designing with much more heavy participation from employees to understand what they might need. And they're entering in through doors that I, that I think are more meaningful. So I'll give you an example. For us, whether somebody's in the office most days or whether or not this is a hub for more remote employees, we like to begin using themes like well-being, uh, connection, change and adaptability as ways for us to enter the design process conversationally. Because if you get executives and employees, interior design professionals and others say, what does it look like for this space to help people to connect in new ways, strengthen weak ties, see better uh, connection across distance using video? There's actually not a lot of disagreement. And when we start getting into issues of employee well-being, which should be on every employer's mind right now, asking the question, like, how do these spaces support well-being? Once again, it's common ground. So I think we're getting to the point where people are learning to approach the design process differently. And then they're designing and this is still maybe a little less common, but it's going to have to become more common. They're designing with the belief that the space will probably have to change on day one. Like post-occupancy adaptation of, a, of corporate real estate, sorry, that's a, that's a mouthful, uh, was not really a thing. Not, not so much. It, like the idea was get the design right. You know, bring in a facilities crew to move stuff over a weekend if you have to make a major change. But the era of like designing a space doing the photography with no people in it and expecting that space to look really nice in five years. I, I think most organizations are way beyond that. And they're saying, well, the people, the work they're doing, the tools they're using are in a constant state of flux. So the, the measure of a good workplace design is how it adapts with the people who are working there based on the amount of time and the type of activities they want to they commit to being in that space. I think that's fascinating on a number of different dimensions, right? Like one of the things I believe is that you know, historically, and you were kind of referencing this, I think large corporates traditionally would invest in 10 year plus leases and, and feel pretty confident in being able to do that relative to business practice. There's already some indication in market that that's shortening and people are not signing up for the same lease length. And you know, it's already been more common in some markets outside the US where leases were more dynamic and shorter than they are in the US. Uh, there's also still a fair amount of discussion and iteration, as you and I have talked about at length, around well, how much time are people going to spend in office and what types of activities? And so how do you, in some ways, build the plane while, you know, after you've kind of already jumped, so to speak, when you know that you don't have as long of a return period on those investments because the lease isn't as long, the usage patterns may change. If the employees are in the office five days a week versus two days a week, it's dramatically different implications for how you might want to design that space. Like, how, how do you kind of collaborate through some of those moving variables? Uh, actually, it's very similar to how we might think about home home design. Um, and I kind of like that as a proxy. So let's just compare like this to what we would do if we were thinking about designing a home. You, you and I are roommates. We're going to move in somewhere. And um, we'd say, well, how long might we be in this space? And so you try to take a look at the duration of activities and experiences you might want to have there. And then you're looking around saying, does this space suit our needs? Um, and by kind of not over committing to one type of space, you're adding a degree of agility. So as an example, let's just take a, a, a multi, uh, like a, a home with multiple bedrooms. You wouldn't expect that 70% of the house would be bedrooms. 
you'd expect that maybe 30%. The analogy would be like, maybe don't dominate your entire floor plan with individual desks. Instead, what does a home uh, offer? You know, a kitchen, uh, a, a porch, a backyard, a, a, a gaming place, a place for homework. You're just saying like, what are the various types of activities that we can imagine doing in the duration of time that we're here? And you plan accordingly and you buy assets, you buy furniture that will move with you if you want to keep them, or you don't invest for things that you don't don't want to keep. The repurposing of existing assets has become more common. You know, we have products that we've designed in recent years specifically to be added into environments that have existing furniture, including furniture mm-hmm. that's not ours. Like visually, it it's designed to blend in with things because in some cases you might say, well, I'm going to reuse some of those desks or some of those file cabinets because I'm not sure we're going to be here for a really long time. But those really cool things we're buying new, like those we're going to want to take with us. So don't force me into a bunch of labor costs to to decommission it. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the best parallel I can give you. Having said all that, shorter lease terms, particularly in Asia, have not been uncommon. Uh, you know, five years, three years, five years is not abnormal. Places like Dublin, it was crazy. 15-year leases are something that we still saw not too long ago. Mm. But around uh, Europe and the U.S., we're still seeing seven years, say sometimes six, seven years as a pretty typical sort of thing. And so it's not like it's not like you're going to flip it in six months. Um, that's, I think, where flex space not co-working, but flexible workspace can begin to really help with some of those really shorter term durations. And I would expect to see growth there too. So do you think, I guess I get a couple reactions to that. One, what's interesting about a home, right, is that to your point, you design it around the different the different use cases or things that you might want to do over the course of a day or week or month or year, right? And you've got different space that's kind of dedicated for those things. Um, but in for the most part, the number of occupants of that home are fixed, right? Like maybe if kids are you add, right? But it's not like you're uh, you're going to significantly change necessarily the composition of what that space looks like. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but if I think about an office, you know, you might go through periods where you have more people who are working on more business as usual type of activity in the office, more people who need to be in collaborative. It's not quite so easy to kind of like reallocate the space um, based on those things. And so are there are there more flexible investments or things that you're starting to recommend that make it easier to be able to kind of like ebb and flow a little bit with kind of like the needs that, that might emerge for a company? Yeah, there are ways of doing it. So like as an example, some of our customers will refer to work points as opposed to workstations. So maybe mm. let's just say there's 200 people that are assigned to an office. Maybe there's 60 or 70 desks, but between the cafeteria or a little co-working space or an outdoor space, there's all these other places where somebody could work. If there's not that many people in during the day, they're going to spread out and use those. But if it's in all hands, they're going to occupy that. Uh, as you might know, in Europe and Australia and other places, the, the notion of activity-based working, which is where there's a variety of spaces and everything is shared, you don't have your own desk, you're just working from wherever, grew to be somewhat common over the last 20 years. And in some cases, it could work. It hasn't generally taken off very well in the Americas. Um But I see a lot of organizations moving beyond that to what's called neighborhood-based planning. And the idea there would be, let's just say you had a group of 24 people assigned to some project. Maybe you give them almost like a little clubhouse. And yeah, there's 10 or 12 desks, but there's a couple of phone booths and there's a little project space and a couple of sofas. And then 
based on however many people are in the office on that day, they know that that's their hub, that's their clubhouse. There might be a small number of them there. There might be all of them there. Or they add three people to the team. There's no need to go buy three new desks. It's just like it's like their home within the overall office landscape. Um, but it's not an exact science. And you do have to take into account each, like for each facility, who are the groups working there? You know, if it's a bunch of... Uh, people doing outbound sales calls on video, that's very different than if it's going to be an engineer doing product development with certain types of physical objects. You kind of have to tailor it. And that's where the art of interior design and and all the great architecture and interior design firms in the world really excel. So it strikes me that you have to be significantly more intentional and thoughtful around the way you approach space than maybe the more algorithmic way that you were describing before, where it's like, okay, I just need X number of desks based on the the number of people or headcount growth. Is there a process that you've found through research or through your own practice that you suggest that companies go through in terms of how do they think through those requirements, the steps, and, and kind of like evaluate their needs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I will say the any office that feels generic is a little risky these days because it's like, well, if it's that generic, then what's it offering me that's better than my house or a coffee shop? Yeah, um, when you talk with an architecture and interior design firm, they'll use the term programming or program development, which is a little confusing for those of us with a tech background, but it really is about needs analysis. And then they'll move into what's known as schematic design, where they're kind of like just doing the overall big layout. So there's established processes there, but what's different I think today is the level of engagement and dialogue with actual employees, even if it's a small representative sample. It, given given that we've used a few different industries as analogies, I might con- compare it to software as a service. If you look at like SaaS, the product managers of a software product are almost always looking at data or in communication with how their users are using the product and trying to adapt it over time, as opposed to, to traditional models where it's like, we designed it, here you go, who wants it? Um, and so it could be focus groups. Uh, we had So we have a podcast on the future of work. I had Steve Todd had a workplace at NASDAQ come on in the very first season and talk about all the ways that they have engaged their employees in new ways beyond surveys to try to understand like their work patterns and their tools and other important elements. Um, There is something known as inclusive design, which we are super passionate about that tries to understand empathetically what people's work experiences are like and allows for whoever's designing the space to begin to realize that yes, there's mobility challenges, there's neurodiversity challenges, but There's also a variety of challenges that people might have that don't often get articulated in a typical design or programming process. But you can hear where this is going. It all comes down to understanding the users as kind of customers of a product that you're designing and adapting over time. So all those good practices that we might learn from product management, I think, are relevant here. And in some ways, facility managers and corporate real estate executives are becoming product owners. In that sense, I was going to ask, do you feel like that skill set exists in the extent or the capability that you think it needs to in terms of the the iterative um, feedback driven nature of what it means to think about product management and application of that type of philosophy to a to a physical space and, and, and environment accordingly? It's, it's pretty early. I, I have a feeling, Rob, that if you and I uh, revisited this conversation in 10 years, we'd say, how are we doing with that? It's becoming more common. But no. Offices 
kind of had a monopoly, right, on how work was supported. And so the the mental shift towards this is an on-demand asset and we have to create a product that our customers, our users truly value is somewhat recent. And the tools to do it are also somewhat recent. I will say I have team members that this is their job. They come alongside our customers and, you know, we don't design spaces, but we can just work with the customer and the architecture and design firm and others to say, here's what we've seen work elsewhere. And we're fortunate to try to stay on the cutting edge of this, but real estate you know, it's an industry that takes a while to adapt, and um, the spaces you create last a long time, even if the lease is short. And so for an organization that might work on, like, let's just say they have a big real estate portfolio. Let's say they work on eight spaces in the course of a couple years. That's still only a certain amount of opportunities to pilot, prototype, learn from the next one. But a continuous improvement approach is what's emerging. Are there... Uh, programs or uh, trainings that you're seeing start to emerge for real estate leaders or, or or practitioners in this space to understand what it means to operate more like product managers in that sense? Or how are people learning or developing skills to be able to do the oh, things that you're describing? Good question. Uh, yeah, I think the industry associations and the real estate world has a few. Um, the International Facilities Management Organization, and I sit on the the global research advisory for that group is adapting the role of facility manager towards more of that product owner. Uh, the corporate global corporate real estate network, Cornet, is doing similar things. And then there's really specific examples. I'll, I'll give you one. We were fortunate to uh, be a collaborator in one of the most inclusively designed offices that I've ever seen called Harkin Institute, named after uh, Senator Tom Harkin, who sponsored the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I was not planning on, on using this as a prop, but like I've got sitting next to me a guide that we and the architecture and design firm BNIM and the Institute put together to say, this is how this project was approached. Soak this in, you know, it's a resource for other people designing spaces. Just any opportunities to maybe share some of those new practices and inspire new things with others is, is happening, but I will say it's probably happening more organically. Than, uh, than in a really coordinated curriculum development type type way. Yeah, I mean, it's I think most things start out that way, right? But it sounds like there may be enormous opportunity over time to distill some of those best practices and trainings if it's going to be so important, it sounds like, to the future of how people think about their spaces. I think you're right, my friend. Um, one other area, and we've talked a lot about office, and we could talk for hours about you know kind of the the, the office as a physical space that people go to. But um, as you mentioned, and we talked about a lot on the front end, um, you spent a lot of time thinking about the home. Um, mm -hmm. And home office is a particularly interesting topic, and it probably gets less attention relative to physical and commercial, like, like, like uh, commercial real estate, for example. But mm -hmm. um, what are you seeing in home office and our employees and employers investing in being as intentional as they need to be and what it means to be able to work remotely from their home or elsewhere as they are about the the spaces that people may you know, travel into on a day-to-day -day basis. Boy, there's so, there's so much to do. No, we have not seen near enough progress here. People have come up with workable solutions for themselves that probably are better than whatever coping you know, situation they had during quarantine. But no, most people and most organizations have not really taken charge of that work from home experience in the same way that maybe we haven't fully seen it on the office side. And I, I just could tell you that 
when I think of a great office or when I think of a great work from home setup, I'm acutely aware of the fact that what comes to my mind are designs that maybe other people have never seen. So like I, I when I think offices, they can be a, amazing, gorgeous, cool, fun, interactive. When I think home, oh boy, I mean, you can do a lot with a work from home situation that goes beyond a desk and a chair. Don't get me wrong. Desk and chair is good, but it's, you know, supporting video meetings, email. What I'd love to see is for individuals to take more charge of the design of their space, even if they're not a designer, and begin asking, what do I need to do in the course of the work week that isn't very well supported? Do I need a better reference zone, as an example? I've got one to my right. Instead of it just being like a bookshelf, I've really thought through, what am I going to need to pull uh, that I might need to use in the course of a week? Um, If somebody doesn't have a height-adjustable table, Pick up the laptop, go to the kitchen, and work at the counter for 10 minutes. Like, take control over your movement. We have a, a work-from-home tool from Herma Miller, wfh.hermiller.com. We've had 32,000 people uh, use it globally. Over 60%, I want to say 63% said that the only time they really move throughout the workday is when nature calls. Like, that's not good. Like, that's get terrifying. up, move. If, if you're going to take a, a phone call, do it outside. Um Yeah, there's all sorts of ways, and it doesn't always require a monetary investment, either through best practices or protocols or just ergonomic training to help people have much happier, healthier lives working from home and the office. I'll tell you personally, my home office has been a a lab uh, for me. I'm really passionate about what's known as biophilic design, which is bringing the outdoors in. So Hmm. I'm in a space yeah, you know, you can see plants behind me, some natural light. I've got a light bulb that has some circadian options, meaning it can kind of mimic what the sun's mm-hmm. doing different times of the day. I've got an aquarium beyond my my camera here. If you've ever seen an aquarium in a doctor's office, it's because aquariums lower blood pressure. So you know what's really nice to look at instead of the camera on a long meeting? Some fish um, floating <laughs> around and the water from the fish tank and water the plants. I've even got a CO2 monitor here to, you know, when CO2 levels get really high, it can it can hurt your cognition. So I know this is extreme because I do this kind of research, but what would a lesser version of this feel like where everybody said, I'm just going to experiment around a little bit? with my work from home situation and then what could employers do let's just start with some ergonomic training some good training to make sure that people aren't experiencing injury uh, or other problems 60 percent of the people that use that work from home tool said they were experiencing physical discomfort throughout the work day it's usually back shoulder neck it's usually associated with sitting on bad chairs um but i think there's huge opportunities and i'm I'm aware that a lot of organizations have been somewhat hesitant to further invest in work from home experiences if they've got low office occupancy levels and a lot of pressure to try to make those offices work a little better. But someday in the future, I I think more organizations will take more responsibility for supporting both because the returns are clear. Employees that have better well-being, employees that are more productive are going to be able to be, you know, contributing members of the community there at work in much better ways than people that are hurting physically, psychologically, or otherwise. It's so obvious when you put it that way, because, you know, look, I think a lot of organizations, you know, based on our flex index data, it looks like 90% of companies that have a minimum days per week requirement require somewhere between two or three days. Our data 
triangulates pretty closely with the WFH research, Nick Bloom data on employees mm -hmm. and employers generally wanting employees in the office somewhere between two and three days a week. And so if you think about it from an employer's perspective, my employee is going to be home 50% or out of the office 50% of the time. That's 50% of their productivity is not within the four walls of the office that we set up for them. Why wouldn't you invest or kind of like think more proactively about how you engage your employees on this? And you know, what I'm curious your perspective on is it is it financial because they they don't want they don't want to invest in it because they've already got the office space and they haven't budgeted it. Is it psychological and they don't want to admit that that's the world that we're in or that we're going to and, and, and investing against it in some way substantiates it in a different way? Or is there something else? Like what, what do you think are the barriers that we've got across there? I think you put your finger on several. I don't know that there is one, but you're, you articulated that beautifully. And by the way, I use your research a lot. I shared it with some of my employees uh, just this morning, actually, a, a few bits from from the Flex Index that I was thinking about. And it's one of the things that you've helped me to do is to see just how much alignment there actually is when you look at desired time in the office, desired work from home. It's not a massive gulf. It's actually it's quite a bit more common ground than people realize. But you're right. When an employer says, hey, we're cool with you spending you know, more location flexibility, spend a couple days working from home or elsewhere, they are rolling the dice that the productivity and well-being of that employee will somehow be preserved. And, you know, when I think well-being, it affects every business outcome because companies are just a collection of people and how those people are doing is, is pretty determinate to how well the organization functions in terms of uh, productivity. And, and there's a lot of debate over productivity metrics, but just in general, if people find that they can be sustainably productive from home or the office, what are, what are the effects on the organization? Look at how much is spent on people. And then, I don't know, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy to me that organizations are willing to allow 40, 50% of that time to kind of be uh, optimized unsupported. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't think the answer is to force everybody to the office. I think the answer is to for organizations to say, where you are, we're going to support you. Let's try to figure out how you can be sustainably productive and how we can make sure that we support your well-being so that you can achieve as much as possible. So if you look, if I think about our audience for you know, this conversation, it's a lot of chief HR officers. It's a lot of real estate executives, but it's also just a lot of uh, people who are interested in future of work and best practices and how it's evolving. And so imagine you were talking to some of those executives. If there were two or three things that you're like, look, I would suggest you think about this immediately when it comes to thinking about investing or supporting the productivity or the engagement of employees with outside of the office in the way they were talking about from a physical setup or otherwise. Um, and then on the other side, if you were talking to employees, you know, if you were saying, okay, look, here are two or three things that I would do right away to improve your setup or the way that you approach work when you're not in the four walls of the company office, what's kind of the, the top of those lists in terms of what people should be thinking about? And both these are framed in terms of supporting people working outside of the office? Outside of the office, that's right. Ah, well, the the message to the employer would start with something fairly soft, which is, can we begin or can you begin by engaging your people to make sure they're working in healthy and productive ways? So let's start with some basic ergonomic training um, and the, the value of movement and having you know various postures supported um, and being aware of some of the traps, I'll say, of excesses in remote working. I mean, we, we are advocates for flexible work, but I'm also aware that social isolation, having your voice marginalized, having some of those broken weak ties um, are 
times where you say, okay, on this day, I'm going to go physically be present with someone. Um, it's all about having employees be more educated and um, more equipped to make choices based on their work experiences. Because it's one thing to give people some location flexibility, but I think the bigger question is, how do you help somebody make smart judgments throughout the work week on how, when, where to work so that the work gets really you know, done well, but that the employee's uh, taken care of as well? For the employee, um, I would probably begin with encouraging them to be more cognizant of their own activities, posture, well-being. I'm super biased, but there's a slew of evidence beyond ours that chairs matter, uh, that back pain. In fact, the Ministry of Labor in the UK, I think, estimated that 62,000 people exited the UK workforce last year due to back pain from from working from home. They were doing a study on long COVID. Yeah, it was. They were doing a study on long COVID trying to look at workforce participation rates. And they were kind of like, well, where where did everybody else go? And they found that there were health issues emerging. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is is serious. Uh, We don't want people to experience injury or other problems like that. So um, I probably would encourage them to think about what they're sitting on and whether or not they're moving, whether or not they're experiencing eye strain, um, lighting, plants, fresh air, all really important. But I think the bigger probably thing that I would would be advocating for everyone is that this is the power of design. Like you can take more control over your environments and say these are going to be places where we all – just genuinely value them more. We all enjoy spending time in them more. It doesn't have to require a huge capital outlay in many cases. It's just that for whatever reason, we're very used to coming into environments and just working with whatever's there. And this is true of restaurants, schools, homes, whatever. But taking charge of the space as a designer, even if you're not a designer, just to say, well, I know what I need right now. And this office is going to need to support our team differently for the project we're doing. Or my home's going to have to support me differently for when I want to take calls. That's like the first step. You got to be cognizant of it and take control. You know, it's interesting. I think my major takeaway from what you're saying is if hybrid work and, and flexible work broadly is going to be a mainstay, and I think we both believe that it is, um, then we should stop treating the spaces that we are in as if this is transient and start investing in them in a way that's reflective of the fact that we're going to work that way on a long-term or ongoing basis. Yes, and I want to acknowledge my bias in saying that, but I don't think kind of living with the status quo is helping anyone. And I do encounter a lot of organizations that are like, you know what, one year lease extension, maybe everybody will come back, you know, after Labor Day. I've seen much better success in organizations saying, we're going to engage our employees. We're going to see what experiences they're struggling with. Like, what are they doing really well at? What are they really struggling with? And we're going to, even if it just means repurposing the furniture and the space you've got, in ways that's intentional and starts a process where there's a dialogue between employees and employer about making these physical environments work better for them, that's a path forward. And like I said, for me, I'll always kind of bring it back to how can we help people to connect in better ways? Because I don't believe there's any amenity that's going to lure anybody back to the office other than people, quality connection with people. I'm going to hit that well, well-being time and time again, because the data suggests that vast majority of people are struggling 
in terms of physical, emotional, and other health problems. The workplace can't solve all of it, but can address some important things. And then change. How do you create these environments to adapt over time so that if somebody feels like, okay, we're going to make a little investment, that it's a smart investment. Sometimes I'll even go so far as to say to one of our customers, we'll try to help you invest the least to make it the most better. Like what's the smallest little intervention or unlock we could do in an existing space to have the employees go like, hey, that's great. Um, that's really working for us in ways that maybe it wasn't before. But w- waiting for 2019 to come back is probably not a viable <laughs> strategy when it comes to either supporting work at home or in the office. It's a great summary of, of the discussion. And, and I, I think I might use that people are your greatest office amenity or some version of that as an ongoing basis. I think that's exactly right. Well, I get asked it every day. I, I, I will say I was I was talking with a very senior HR person at a, at a $10 billion plus company just this week. And um, nothing against this person. I, I get it all the time. What sort of amenities will lure people back? I'm like, ah. Let's talk about how the space can deliver value and how people can experience quality connection with other people. Those two things are proven. Like they'll, people will, I'll go to a concert, I'll go to a restaurant, I'll fly across the world to an event if it means that I'm connecting with people. If I'm not connecting with people, I'm going to tune in digitally. So, you know, we can learn from these other facets, but um, I'm not sure bagels uh, or kombucha, although I do enjoy kombucha, uh, are necessarily like the big unlocks. Don't get me wrong. There's a role for all that, but it's not, that's not what the strategy should hinge on. That's right. And, and I, I do think that there is, look, there is wisdom to recognizing that the office is increasingly for employees, no longer a default, but a decision and a thought process. Right. And if that's the case, then you should think about what motivates someone to make a decision. Right. And the attractiveness of the office and the space and how conducive it is for working, the things, the amenities you put in there, how easy you make it to get there. I don't think there's a silver bullet, but each piece of that is important in getting someone to make a decision or want to make a decision to come into a space. Totally. Yeah. And then the other facet, which I I know, I think you and I have chatted about before is the situation that many organizations are in right now with majorly overscheduled meetings throughout the day does have to get addressed. Because if the schedule flexibility is non-existent and a person says, I'd love to connect with so-and-so over coffee, or I'd love to immerse myself in a project room, or I'd love even in my home to be able to go read something over on the sofa. If it's seven hours of video meetings all day long, it's not sustainable. Like I, it's, it's become a real structural impediment to all of this. And uh, I'm not anti-meeting, but I do think, you know, revisiting like Priya Parker's art, art of gathering and asking like what meetings, what uh, of these really add value and then eliminating the ones that don't are a huge part of this. Totally. We're going to have to do a whole other podcast sometime on meetings and, and how do we solve that part of the no, part of the equation? No. Well, this is great, Ryan. One of the things that I think you know that we always do when we wrap up is a, is a quick rapid fire so people can get to know you as a person a little bit more. Are you game for a few rapid fire of questions? Of course, always. Yep. All right. Uh, first one, what was your very first job? My very first job was at my mom's gift store. She owned a little gift store. And uh, I was young, probably too young to legally work, but she offered free gift wrapping. And so among other things, I was the free gift wrapper. I wrapped hundreds of random lamps and other gifts, uh, gourmet foods. So if you ever hear that I'm the best wrapper in the industry, that's what that means. 
<laughs> you were designing presents from an early age. It was kind of an early, I feel like it was an early starting point of where you were headed. So it certainly put me on the floor doing customer service. I was probably 13. And then later <laughs> I got into retail. And actually, at one point, I worked at a wallpaper store, which was my, my real first uh, introduction to residential design. Um, and yeah, just the, the, the process of working with residential designers. Cool. Um, what was the, or what is the best book that you have read lately? So I am a huge history nerd. Uh, I don't find much value in business books. I try, you know, I read a few of them. Um, but I love history. So I just revisited a book called The Greater Journey by David McCullough, which is about all these Americans that went to Paris in the 1800s and all that mm. they learned. It's, it, it is a book about apprenticeship. And it got me thinking a lot about just how critical the people who build into us are and the lengths that these folks went to, to have somebody build into them. And then it affected so many facets of life in America, arts, medicine, science. But yeah, McCullough, oh, he's like... He's my number one. And when he passed uh, last year, boy, that was tough for me. But I, just, I, I think I've read that book four times. Oh, I'm going to have to check it out. That's awesome. Uh, and super, super fascinating topic. Um, different medium. Is there a movie or a show that you're obsessed with right now? Oh, gosh. Well, movies, I've always been super into the Bourne series. In fact, in my early ah, days so at Herm Miller, I used to name the projects. Like I had projects like Blackbriar and... Uh, uh, there's a few others. I wasn't sure if you're going to go with supremacy or ultimate. Um, or, or <laughs> ultimate. I love the Bourne series, but more recently, my, my wife would tell you that I will not shut up about the bear. I know that everybody's talking about the bear. It is like having lived in Chicago for eight years of my life. Um, and that show was just, it's really this incredible kind of redemption story. It, it's a, uh, it's wonderful if you haven't seen it on Hulu. And then I've got a teenage, young teenage son who's all into Star Wars. So we're, we're into Ahsoka right now, which is pretty darn cool, too. No, so I love Star Wars. I have also. no shortage of TV in my life. I'm embarrassed to admit. I think you and most other people, to be totally honest with okay. you. Um, it's a good segue, by the way, the bear. And when you go into the office, is there a favorite office snack that you have? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Actually, when when you ask that, my mind goes back to being at a startup, and we had um, we had nitro brew like coffee on tap, and oh my gosh, did I overindulge in this to the point of like laying awake till two or three in the morning unintentionally. I've learned that that I'm dangerous with the nitro brew, but no, around you know Miller Knoll facilities, it's it's uh, I try to trend towards the more healthy snacks we keep on hand. Got it. Um, who is a future of work thinker or writer or researcher that you really respect? I mean, I, I know we're running along. I, I could spend 30 minutes on this one because one of the things that I think makes our approach at Miller Knoll different from the research being done in our industry is that we keep a huge community of collaborators and we do almost all of our research and insight sharing with others, which is why I'm privileged to spend time with you. You know, shoot, Brian Elliott, Debbie Lovich, Nick Bloom, Phil Kirshner, Despina Katskaikis. I mean, there's so many. And if you look at our podcast, you can pretty much see, along with a handful of others, who who I think about most days. But I, I will highlight one person whose voice I think has been maybe underrepresented in the industry, and that's Callie Williams-Yost. Hmm. Callie's founder of this group called Flex Strategies. And um, she's been consulting on flexible work for a really, really long time. And... We had her on the podcast in season two, and 
she was one of the people that said first to me, and this is back when we were still actively doing future forums. So we all kind of paid attention to this. She said, these hybrid strategies are only focused on location flexibility. They're not going to result I'm paraphrasing, they're not going to result in meaningful change. Hmm. You're going to find that companies adopt them and then nothing happens because nobody's working any differently. No, Nobody has adopted new work practices. It's just a policy decision to the point where I don't even refer to hybrid work anymore. It's like it, it's been implanted in my mind that hybrid is a policy. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing, but it doesn't really take you anywhere. And so I pay a lot of attention to Callie's perspectives because she's been in it for so long. And um, there's just a lot of wisdom to be learned. And and folks, and and frankly, I I would include you in that group in terms of folks that there there are a lot of us who have uh, become more passionate about this topic in the last few years, right? And and there are folks that have been here for a really long time and have been studying the evolution of this. And it's important to recognize that this is not a trend unto itself. It is a it is a step in a journey that has started a long time past and will continue a long time forward. And, and the folks that have been invested in that way for a long time are really, uh, really important to listen to and, and, and consult with. So I think that's great. I think so. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm switching up books now, but Thomas Friedman's most recent one, which I think is called Thank You. Thank You for Slowing Down or Thank You for Being Late. I can't remember which, but his, his basic premise is that when everything accelerates, like when everything gets really fast, the smart person will take a moment. So like if, if some sort of emergency breaks out around you, like take a second, see what's going on. Um, I think there's a, a group, uh, and I'm, I'm fortunate to know you and many others that are part of this group, that are taking an objective look at what's going on today, taking a look in the past at what we can learn from it and what we're seeing to say, okay, there's a smarter, more comprehensive way forward. I'm just you know really aware that sometimes the answers are more complicated than people might like. I I had one of our own leaders say to me the other day, you give kind of long answers. I'm like, well, stop asking me such complicated (laughs) questions. (laughs) Totally. Or rich questions, yeah. That's great. Uh, All right, one final question for you. For for folks that are listening who would like to learn more about you or read more of the research that you put out, where would you send them? Yeah, so on Miller Knoll, we have a page called Ideas in Action that include links to all of our most recent research. We're going to be putting out quite a bit of new information there, including results of a large new global study we've done um, that we're calling the Global Workplace Assessment, actually looking at uh, how organizations are doing in terms of delivering quality workplace to their people. That's still a little bit off yet, but that's the page to, to keep an eye on. And then, as you know, my friend, I am not shy on LinkedIn. So if you want whatever thoughts uh, of the research team might be discussing this week, I usually take them to LinkedIn to share what's on our minds and get feedback from all the people we serve. Awesome. Well, Ryan, look, really enjoyed having you on here. Uh, I find you super insightful on a range of topics, whether it comes from home office or right, the actual office office. I had to figure out better language to distinguish between these. Uh, but thank you for for sharing all of that wisdom. And uh, I think it's some really good actionable takeaways for how to think about your own health and productivity and engagement that people can, uh, can really uh, hold on to from this. So I appreciate it. It has been a privilege to join you. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Please also consider giving us a rating or leaving a review as that helps other listeners find the podcast. 
For more Flex Index content, including past episodes, our Flex Index newsletter, and monthly research reports, visit flex.scoopforwork.com. See you next time.